Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at 5th Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. Scripture portion is taken from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the God. You may be seated. And as you're seated, let me pray for you as we jump into the word of God this morning. Uh, God, we come to you, and we come uh, as those who are poor and needy, but those who um, you love to help. God, you are gracious and compassionate. You are merciful. Lord, you have given us your word. You have given it to us to instruct us and to teach us this morning about how we might actually live well as the human beings that you've made. Lord, you have uh, made us and fashioned us in your image and your likeness, Father, and you have wonderful things to show us in your word this morning. So I ask that you would open our hearts to receive them. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, um, we would look to Jesus. Lord, that together we would see how, no matter how much we've missed what you've communicated to us or how broken we might be in our own lives, you are the one who's come to save us, to restore us, to make us new. And Lord, so we just ask that you'd work powerfully by your Holy Spirit, that Christ City Church, the people here, will become a little more as you've created us all to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are this morning uh, in our second week in our series, The Goodness of Being Human. The Goodness of Being Human. And on our first week in this short series before Advent, we learned that as human beings, we are made in the image and the likeness of God for a purpose. We're made in the image and the likeness of God for the purpose of of extending God's rule and his presence through our human dominion to bless the whole of creation. This really beautiful, big, vast picture. Uh, Christ City, if you don't know who you are this morning, you are a human being made in the image and likeness of God for dominion of this world. That's who you are. That's your purpose. That's what God created you to be. But to accomplish our purpose as human beings, what we must do is this. We must submit ourselves to our creator's intention for us. 
We talked about that a lot uh, last week already and the ways that, that dominion goes wrong so often when we try to, to bring our own rule into the picture rather than rule under God, we rule for ourselves. For our dominion to go well, we must submit ourselves to our creator's intention for us. So last week I shared a tool illustration as we began, and I'm going to share another one this morning to kind of get us off on the right track. Last week, we talked about how to use a tool well, you must first know what it is, right? If you don't know what it is, you're going to use it in in a weird way that's not even according to its purpose. But second, to use a tool well to accomplish some good, you need to uh, submit yourself to use the tool according to its operating instructions. So I worked in construction for um, quite a long time in my life, and I happen to know very well what happens when you refuse to use a tool according to its operating instructions. Whether that's in taking up a nail gun and uh, firing at my coworkers periodically and then back at me, uh, disaster ensuing for everyone, it's not actually a good thing to do, or whether it were those times when I would hang way over the rafters of the building that we were building and all I had in my hand was a skill saw and I thought, well, I can use this as a hammer and begin to, to pound away. There's a theme here, by the way, of using the wrong things to be hammers. I'm just realizing it says a lot about me. Um, But we have to use tools as they were meant to be used to get the most out of them. We have to submit to their operating instructions. And in the same way, if we're to live fully as human beings, to actually accomplish this glorious mission of dominion under God that we've been given as human beings, we also as human beings need to submit ourselves to how God made us to submit ourselves to the operating instructions that he's given to humanity and for our dominion. I want to look further at what that means today. What does it mean to submit ourselves to what God has done in making us and the operating instruction he's given for our dominion? And I'm going to look further specifically by focusing on part of the passage that I skipped over last week. We read it. We didn't talk a lot about it. That's a passage in Genesis 1:27, in the middle of what we just read and how human beings are created in the image and likeness of God as male and female. Made in the image and the likeness of God for the purpose of dominion as male and as female. What we'll look at are three points. Look at the order of male and female in creation. We'll look at the disorder of male and female through our sin and our rebellion against God. And we'll look at the reordering of male and female in Jesus and what he's done to fix what's so broken in us and in this world. So we'll look at these three points starting right away, looking at the first point, order, or the order of male and female. And again, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. So you can put that first slide up and look at the text and keep it up there for a second. See, as we read this passage, I want you to notice a couple of things. I want you to notice that right in the middle of this programmatic foundational passage about what it means to be a human being, what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God for dominion, right in the middle, verse 27, is a verse about being made male and female. Isn't that interesting? And notice that God says in this passage, not that, that one, that the men are image bearers of God, or that the other, just the women, 
are the image bearers of God, but that both bear the image and likeness of God and that both are given dominion. So look at it with me. We're going to read it now. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is an important comment on some Hebrew grammar here. In that last line in verse 27, male and female, he created them. We're meant to understood this as a summary of what's come before. Adding more information and filling out who is the one made in the image and likeness of God. Not just men, but male and female. And then in verse 28, the passage continues, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And again, notice the command for dominion isn't men, go and subdue. <clears throat> women, go and fill the earth. I'm losing my voice. But it's a command for both. This is an, this is an inopportune time to have your voice go strange. <clears throat> but it's a command given to both, right? <laughs> Dominion for men and women. And that's so significant because in this text, the equality and the dignity given to every human being, to both men and women, male and female, it's this beautiful and it's this unique thing in human history. Especially when we look at the ancient cultures of the day where their creation narratives were kind of a, a picture in many ways of, of of this masculineness dominating and subduing femininity in order to come out on top. And that was even in their creation narrative. But here we have perfect equality and dignity for every human, both as male and as female. Oh, thank you so much. Wonderful. Both are essential. Men and women, male and female. Both are essential first because neither one, neither... A man by himself or men by themselves can bear God's image on his own and neither can women. For example, um, women have the potential built into who they are to show forth something of God's character that men can't. Do you realize that? Very often in scripture, when God communicates his compassion and his care, he compares himself to a nursing mother. Isn't that interesting? This beautiful way that, that God's saying there's something about womanliness, about being female that communicates something, part of the fullness of God that men were not made to be able to communicate and to bear witness to. And then vice versa, of course, there's lots of father language in scripture of God where there's a significant way that, that men uh, can bear and show forth part of the character and the goodness of God that women cannot, that both are needed to give a picture even of the fullness of the character and the goodness of God. So both are essential because now they can bear God's image on his or her own. And second, because only together can men and women fulfill the purpose of dominion. 
Neither of them can do it by themselves. To fulfill God's purpose of extending his good dominion, multiplication is needed. And I don't know if I need to tell you how human multiplication works. But, but men can't do it by themselves. And women can't do it by themselves. And for this task of multiplication for dominion, each has been perfectly created as one half of a beautiful and intricate whole. Isn't that awesome? There's a quality and, and beauty baked in here. And in fact, this is exactly what God describes when he creates woman to be Adam's wife in Genesis 2, verse 18. And in that verse, we read this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a him a helper fit for him. Genesis 2 is interesting. It's essentially a zoomed in, a different camera angle on the creation account. You can read all Genesis 1, and then Genesis 2 is like, all right, we're going to go in for a different angle and fill out the picture. And there we're zooming in on Adam and Eve. And in this passage, God looks at his world, and the only thing that he sees that isn't good is Adam. All throughout the narrative, it is good, it is good, it is very good. It is not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. So what will God do? I'll make him a helper fit for him. God creates woman, the man's suited opposite. In fact, those words fit for him, they translate a word, can you say it with me? Connecto. Connecto. It means fit for him. And it communicates that, that Eve is Adam's perfectly opposite and suited partner. So if you imagine that the bar graph of, of Adam's characteristics over here, where the bar graph is weak or non-existent, God's like, we'll do the opposite thing over here and make a beautifully suited opposite for Adam. Another half for humanity who would be strong in every area that he is weak and vice versa. Now the passage also said that, that Eve is a helper fit for Adam. Now I want to get at something here because I know that in English helper has some negative and lesser connotations. Does anyone feel that? Helper, helper feels lesser, helper feels negative. Okay, nobody feels that. Nobody feels that here. That's okay. <clears throat> I'm just going to talk about it if that's okay because I, I suspect that maybe you're not being honest. What I want you to know is that <clears throat> in Hebrew, the word for helper is azer. And azer in Hebrew has no negative connotations to it. No lesser connotations to it, actually, even. In fact, do you know who is most often described as azer in the Old Testament? It's God. God is azer. For example, Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help, my azer, the same word, comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Do you see that? It's not, it's not lesser. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful word in Hebrew. And Eve is Adam's helper as his wife. This is very important. Not to help Adam accomplish Adam's selfish desires. It's not what it is. But to be an ally with Adam. A suited opposite together with Adam to accomplish 
God's purpose for the flourishing of the whole creation. Isn't that awesome? It's, it's perfect suitedness and fittedness. It's not antagonistic. It's not one party serving the other for their whims, but both parties together accomplishing the purposes of God in the world. It's beautiful. There's nothing like it, I don't think, as a description of humanity in the history of the world. I want you to think about it for a moment. This is very, very significant. For the purpose of dominion and multiplying humankind, God did not make one man with a harem. It's not what he made. I was reading a kid's book about birds with my daughter last night, and I saw that there's this one bird that says, this one male has 10 different nests within his vicinity, and, and all these females that he propagates his seed with, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's not how God made human beings. It's not. It's not how he made them. God made one man to be married to one woman and to multiply by raising a family. And there's a reason for that. It's because human children take a very long time to mature. Can I get an amen? Amen. Takes a long time for human kids compared to other animals to get old enough to go and live life on their own. And if God had made mankind to have one man and ten women, the one man in the harem method, the kids are the ones that are going to lose in that situation. It's a horrible arrangement for children. It's a horrible arrangement for multiplication. See, God gave us these beautifully suited physical and psychological and emotional and every other sort of difference to fulfill complementary parts of the enormous task of raising children, of extending God's dominion through multiplying humanity outward into this world. It's a really big and beautiful picture here. I want to talk a little bit about, about how this would have, would have worked, especially in ancient times, but, but still I, I think it's applicable. There are differences to, to male and female. I'm not sure if you're aware of these. I'm going to talk to you about them. First of all, it's not men, but women who become pregnant. Y'all, y'all following so far? And even after pregnancy, mothers bear the lion's share of responsibility, especially for very young children. It's just how it works. It's just how it works. And God actually has designed women to have the capacity to give profoundly of their bodies to give a life to the next generation. It's incredible. And it's not what you men have. He's designed them to have wombs and breasts and to nurture in particular ways, but also he's designed them to have more oxytocin and estrogen, which are bonding hormones. So even psychologically, as you become mother and who you, even in who you are physically, whether you aren't mother or you are, you have these ways that, that equip you and change you as a human being, especially for the care of infant humans. It's unique and it's amazing. But what happens when, when women become mothers is that they become vulnerable. So what God has done is he's created men so that together with their wives, they could raise a family in strength and in security. Right? Because God didn't create men to behave like selfish brutes, but to live with responsibility and fidelity to wife and to family. See, God made men with the capacity to become fathers so they could use their, on average, greater physical strength to provide and to labor and to help their wives and their children 
to support this very vulnerable and delicate situation. God's like, you guys got to become fathers. I've made you different for that task. You need to take greater risks at times to find solutions to meet the needs. And for that, I'm going to give you testosterone, which makes you a more of a risk-taking kind of a person on planet Earth. But you're to use that not for yourself, but for them. Do you see the suitedness? There's difference. Each has a part to play. They're different parts, and they're beautiful, and they're good parts. So to summarize what I've been talking about so far and what, what Genesis, I think, is saying to us, we need to know this. God made human beings and his image and likeness for the purpose of dominion. Extending humanity's presence, extending his rule and his blessing through humanity's presence on this world. But he did so by commanding the man and the woman to multiply and making the male and female with the unique capacity to become a mother or a father. And there's a few implications. There's three that I want to show you from this before we move on to our next point. And the first implication is this. At the heart, Christ City, of what it means to be male or female according to the Bible is the biological potential to become fathers or mothers. If you want to ask yourself, what is a man? What is a woman? These are live, open questions today. You can point to the Bible. You can point to the history of humankind and our understanding of ourselves that a man is a human creature with the biological capacity to become a father. And a woman is a human creature with the biological capacity to become a mother. Those are the fundamental differences between male and female at the most concrete level. The first implication. The second implication is this. I realize that not everybody here is a mother or a father. I know that. I know that. And I need to talk to you for a second. Because I don't want you in any way to think that, that there's some way that the Bible teaches that you're less than human because of that. Because you're not. Because you're just as much an image bearer of God created for the purpose of glorious dominion, whether you have children or you don't, because you're a man or a woman here. And what God has done is he's baked in those qualities that are different and are necessary for becoming mothers and fathers, even into you in whatever situation you're in. So you're uniquely different and suited for different tasks because of who you've been created to be as male or female. So I want to encourage you, whether you are physically a mother or father or not, can I encourage you to lean into the unique ways that you can become spiritually father or mother? Because that is now the role that you've been given within the dominion of God's world is to lean into those spiritual capacities. You have things to offer in this community as a woman that men cannot offer. And you have things to offer men that women cannot offer. It's important that we lean into those and embrace our maleness or femaleness. So if you are a woman, for example, lean into your on average, I know we're talking, we're talking about spectrums here, but on average, your greater capacity for empathy and nurturing for be the benefit of those around you than men. There's an average way that that's true. I think at root, that's something to talk about. Men, Use your, on average, greater strength and testosterone to risk and to labor, not for yourselves, but for others. To take responsibility, to lean into ways that you can become spiritual fathers to others and care for their needs. 
All right, third implication. The Bible teaches that sex is for marriage. Marriage is for dominion. So this whole world would be filled with healthy image bearers of God. That's what we're seeing in this passage. And there's an implication then. It means that the Bible's teaching, the Bible's very strict, by the way, very narrow teaching about sexual morality, sexual immorality, what's right when it comes to to sexual practice and what's wrong. It's all for a reason, and it's not because God's prudish. It's because there's a purpose baked into sex that God has made. And you find that any of the sexual immorality that is rejected in Scripture or taught against in Scripture, you can trace it back to the way that it is sex taken away from its creational purpose. Whether that's adultery or various kinds of immorality, whatever it might be. God's eager for the flourishing of his humankind by keeping all these things together in a beautiful way. All right, so God created male and female to fill this world with his presence as they become mothers and fathers and create healthy families for the purpose of raising the next generation. But it's no secret that a lot of things have gone wrong in this world. It's no secret. We're going to consider our second point then together, the disorder of male and female, and look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. In this passage, we read these words. God speaks to Eve and says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. All right, so a little bit of context. Genesis 1 and 2, the beautiful picture of what God's created before anything goes wrong. Genesis 3 is a story of the temptation of Adam and Eve to sin. It's a story of their disobedience and the consequences of their disobedience that are communicated to them by God. In Genesis 3.16, this one verse are God's words talking about what now is going to go wrong with marriage because of sin. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. We read that no longer would husband and wife labor together as allies for the common mission of extending God's dominion in this world, but instead they'd cannibalize their marriage. And they start to become selfish and seek to extract from their marriage and from one another what they want for their own selfish purposes. So your desire shall be contrary to your husband. You want against him. Your desires are against him, but he shall rule over you. By the way, this is not a good verse. This is a bad verse. Just so we're clear, ruling over the woman is not a good thing. It's a wicked thing. And God said, this is what's going to happen because of sin. See, it's a tale as old as time. It's a story that we're familiar with, right? We know this story in the way that marriages have been broken. It's led to billions of broken families. It's led to hurt kids and broken marriages. Rather than God's dominion growing and expanding that brings blessing as marriage has been broken, it broke God's dominion. And this turned to immense destruction and pain and suffering, even in this room. I'm confident that every person here bears some kind of scar from the brokenness of God's original intention in marriage. But in response to the pain of sin and and how this beautiful order that God made has been broken, 
We've tried to come up with a couple of our own solutions because we think we're pretty clever as human beings. Like, I'll mitigate the pain. I'll find a way to avoid the pain and the suffering in my life a couple of different ways. I'm going to show you two different ways that we try to avoid the pain and fix things. But I also want you to see that both of them don't fix the problem. They make it worse. The first way we try to free ourselves from uh, this pain and the suffering is that we try to liberate ourselves from any of the God-given responsibilities that come from being male and female. So when I was a kid, to illustrate this, there was a joke. Um, it's not a good joke. It's a terrible joke, uh, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Um, and, it's, and it's this. Why do husbands, why do men always play with their wedding rings? It's because they've forgotten the combination. Or, or there's an old reference to the old ball and chain. Right? And those, those jokes are just illustrations that recently, even in our culture, we would joke about what the good life would be as men. And what the good life was as men was to idealize freedom from slavery to our families or to our wives. To get out and do it our way. You know, it would be awesome if I was liberated from the responsibility that God saddled me with so I could be sexually free to experience all the pleasure that I want. Man, that would be awesome if I didn't have to raise any kids. Or free to pursue my desire for dominance or for status or for wealth or for adventure to satiate my free spirit how I want to for my own purposes. That's the idealized man. See, our culture believes this in many ways. Right? And the old jokes aside, we see it in, in I mean, I don't, we don't have to go and enumerate it. All the different ways that we see it even today that this is some picture of an idealized man. But for women, it's the same. It's the same. It's not different than this. Because the idealized woman, in many ways in our society today, is also someone who's been liberated from the burden of children or husband. I mean, sure, you can have those things if you want to, but don't let it define you. You can have those things if you want to, but, but your real identity the thing that you really ought to live for is your liberty to pursue what you want the ways that you wanted. I was listening to one of my favorite authors on these topics, um, Professor Abigail Favale. She's an incredible writer on the topic of sexuality and gender from a Christian perspective. If you've not read her book, The Genesis of Gender, you need to read it. Um, but she was talking about this and, and she said, you know, in many ways, what, what the later forms of feminism have done is they've tried to free women to become the very worst kinds of men. Isn't that brutal? Like, like hey, men have all this sexual license and selfishness. Women should too. <laughs> like, that's terrible. Don't go that way. Don't go down that path. And this liberation from God's order to be free ourselves, it only results in greater suffering for humankind. It's awful. The data is in the fatherlessness, the motherlessness, the broken families that it perpetuates. It's awful. It's misusing the machinery of who we are, causing enormous social, psychological, and even physical damage to us, to others, and to our society. All right, so that's the first way. First, first repair plan on human beings, not very, uh, not very good. Let's not go that way. But we do it another way too. We try to escape the pain of sin and brokenness another way as well. And this time we do it 
by trying to liberate ourselves from God's order. That's the first way. The second way is to escape the pain of sin and brokenness by essentially taking God's place as the creator, right? So if it's not working to liberate ourselves, what we'll do then, we'll just become God instead of God. And then we'll remake male and female as we see fit, right? So if it's, if it's the first one's to liberate, to be liberated from order, this one is to just rearrange order. Take God's place and, and rebuild what it means to be human in our maleness and femaleness. In our culture today, this is the norm. As we're taught that male and female is not a binary category tied to our biology, but a spectrum of socially constructed expression. And it's as diverse as you want it to be. It's on you. Live it out however you'd like it to be. There used to be numbers, but the numbers are growing of what that could be and all the different permutations. See, in our culture, we're taught this, and it comes from a number of different sources, but I want to share with you one of them. Um, Judith Butler is a leading academic today writing on these topics, and what you see in the streets and popularly around you every day, it comes right now largely from Judith Butler's writings, and she comes from a lot of philosophers and thinkers before. We could talk about them sometime if you're interested, um, but, but she's a significant one, and what happened is that she started talking about this idea of gender performativity, and what she did is she observed that in culture, maleness and femaleness are lived out differently. And we all know that, right? Like you wear your hair differently in one culture as a woman than you do here. And you dress differently from one culture to the next as a a man, perhaps. Or even in the beautiful allied relationship of male and female and how that works together for the raising of kids, that organization, that arrangement is a little different from culture to culture. And so she looked at those differences and she said, aha, not only is there cultural difference, but actually the whole thing is all just cultural altogether. The whole thing, the whole thing of gender and sexuality, it's just cultural. So we can make it however we want. And she saw a little bit of truth in the cultural difference. And then she extrapolated that and said, now it's up to us to redefine gender any way that we like. By the way, in the Bible, Paul speaks about the cultural expression of gender in 1 Corinthians 11. And he's got categories for this. We can talk about it sometime if you're interested. So, Butler's suggestion, we can become gods and we'll make our gender and our sexuality however we want. But that's not true Christ city. And we can't. And to go the route of Judith Butler is to live into an imaginary world that is completely at odds with reality. An imaginary world at odds with reality. We simply aren't the creator. We are creatures. And we lack both the wisdom and the ability to change what God has made. When we try, it results in disaster. I want to illustrate this and with a little thought experiment. We'll have a, a slide up um, up here next to a picture. We'll come up. There we are. That's good. So imagine, you're not the creator, right? Keep that in mind. Imagine if you happen one day to walk into an old nuclear power plant's control room, like this one. This is Chernobyl, by the way. It's pretty cool. Because that's a regular illustration. We do that from time to time, you know? And while you're in the room, imagine if it suddenly occurred to you that you might be able to make the production of electricity a little more efficient. I can do this. I've got a hat on. I got a shirt that says, you know, important nuclear physicist person. I bought it at the gift shop. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk in and I'm going to press some buttons. I'm going to throw some switches and bada bing, bada boom. Pun intentional. Advancement in technology. But if, if you actually went into that, that room with the amount of knowledge about nuclear physics that you have and tried to change things, it's not going to go well for you. It's not going to go well for you. And in the same way, you don't know all that you need to know. You don't have the knowledge or the wisdom or the length of life and observation to know how to change human beings for the better. You can't do it. It's not possible. We're not able to. See, none of us has any long-term data to demonstrate that redefining male and female separate from human biology will lead to good outcomes as far as our society. But we are already very sadly collecting concrete data about the harm that it causes when we try. There's an increasing tide, it's not often talked about, and that's a problem, of detransition stories. Some of them I know uh, even firsthand or secondhand myself. Cautionary tales that the redefinition of gender does not provide happiness, but actually increases poor mental health, depression, and anxiety, and even suicide. And we're told often, as in the literature and in the news today, that, that these things happen because we need to be more liberated. We're just not liberated enough. We should be even more free to redefine things in our own image. But I think the data actually goes the other direction and says the problems are here because we've been rejecting the concrete realities of who we've been created to be as a gift of God. And the more that we fight it, the more it hurts us. Creation isn't made better by our rejection of order, but worse. See, all our efforts, all of our sin, they don't humanize, they dehumanize. And if that's true, then what's to be done? <laughs> I want you to consider the good news this morning and our last point, the reordering of creation. So if God's order for dominion is through male and female image bearers, and if we have corrupted that order by dominating one another or rejecting God's order or redefining that order, then how can we redeem our humanity? How can it be redeemed? Only through Jesus, our Savior. Jesus came to do this work, Christ City. No matter where you are at in your thinking and processing about this, Jesus has come to help you. Jesus has come to rebuild you and renew you and recreate you in a beautiful way as the human being he desires you to be. There's a fullness of life that he has for you. How did Jesus do this? How is Jesus working and reordering and recreating and doing this good work? He's doing it because Jesus gets underneath the lie of the serpent who whispers in our ears, is God really good? Can God's order be trusted? See, Jesus gets underneath that lie and that deceit because when we look at Jesus, we don't see a creator God who makes rules just for fun to taunt us. It's not what we see when we look at Jesus. You guys know Jesus. When we look at Jesus, we see a Savior who loves us and wants us to have fullness of joy. A Savior who wants us to have delight as the human creatures he's made. So the Bible very often describes God as a good shepherd. That image, we read it from Psalm 100 even this morning in the call to worship, 
That image is, is meant to show us this picture of a shepherd who leads his sheep to the very best sort of life, to the greenest pastures, to safety, to security. But Jesus has come to us as the fullness of the display and the revelation of God as the good shepherd. And in John 10, 7 to 15, Jesus says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and runs away and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he doesn't care anything about the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He's the good shepherd, Christ. Do you know his voice? Do you know his voice? He knows the paths to good pasture. He doesn't just say that he's the good shepherd and command us to obey him. He proves that he is safe. He proves that he is good, that he can be trusted to be obeyed because he lays down his life for us. See, though we stray like sheep in our sin, trying to get rid of this order that God's made and going down our own paths, paths that that will lead to our destruction, Jesus comes to us. He's the shepherd who meets us in the place of our suffering and our destruction because of our sin. He enters into the danger to his own life that we have created. And he was willing to lay down his life on the cross for our sin and in our place to save us. So there are two voices in this world, Christ City. Two shepherds. One wants to lead you to death. And one wants to lead you to life. Who will you follow? This morning, I, I realized maybe you're someone who's got tons of questions about what the Bible teaches. And, and you're, you're hearing this and you're like, man, there's a lot to process here. Can I encourage you to look at Jesus? To keep working on this stuff? To, to don't, don't give up asking these questions to try to sort it out as you look to Scripture? But do so looking to Jesus, knowing who he is, knowing that little bit of his spirit that's working on your heart, compelling you with his goodness, that he can be trusted. That maybe maybe your views and maybe your cultures aren't right and, and that his are good. Taste and see that he is good. Turn to him and follow him. See, the good news is that Jesus is getting under the hood of Satan's lies and he's drawing us back into obedience winning us by his love. But there's more good news because the God of the Bible doesn't just command obedience. He gives human creatures everything they need to start to obey. He empowers us and he helps us to make us whole, to begin to make us whole no matter how badly we've been broken in this world. See, three days after Jesus died, he was resurrected from death. 
That's what happened historically. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He poured out his Holy Spirit on the church so the church would be filled up with the life of Jesus so that the Spirit would begin to free us from the sin that crushes our humanity and brings destruction into this world. And he's done that to change us, to cause us to grow, to be the human beings he created us to be, to glorify him in this world to transform selfish men and women into those who are willing to lay their lives down and bear responsibility as spiritual or physical mothers and fathers for the good of others. The Holy Spirit wants to do that work in your life today. He can and he is and he will. He came to transform the conflicts that we have in our marriage and make peace as we learn from Jesus what it means to serve one another. He came to transform our opinions that marriage and family are evils to be avoided. And to start to move us toward embracing them as good and worthy things to pursue, to support, and to defend in our culture. See, one of my favorite verses is a verse about reordering. And it's a very nerdy verse because it has my favorite Greek word in it. It's Ephesians 1 verse 10. It says, Jesus came as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. But this picture is about disorder in order. It's picturing the created world like the aftermath of a hurricane. And it's picturing Jesus as the one who starts to bring peace after peace and put it back into its proper spot. And those words, it says, to unite all things in himself. He's like, Jesus came as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in himself. It's this word of, of anakephliosis, this crazy Greek word. And it's this word of Jesus again taking his place as the head over creation to reorder it piece by piece in this beautiful and wonderful way. You see, Jesus is the resurrected King of Kings. He is God. He is the head of a new humanity. And by his grace, he is drawing everyone to himself by his spirit right now. Will you listen? Because the reality is that he is coming again. And when he comes again, he will come as the ruler and the judge of all the created world. And every knee will bow before Jesus, whether willingly or unwillingly. The question for you today is, will I follow Jesus and choose life? Or will I reject him and choose death? So God created human beings in his image and his likeness, as male and female, to extend his rule and his presence through our dominion. So here's a radical idea. If you want to change the world by filling it with the presence of God for his glory, why don't you think about getting married, having kids, staying married, and raising those children to the glory of God? Not all of you are able to do that, and that's okay. But there are those here who might be able and who've written that off as a possibility. There's something beautiful here to recover. I just want to say there's many more things to talk about in this topic, and I'd love to chat with you if you have questions. If you want to just give me some feedback or just chat together, we can do that. Can I pray for us right now? Lord, we come to you and we realize how radical your word is in this world. But Lord, I pray that we would also realize and start to have the lights turn on about how 
good your word is for this world. How good your order is. How it leads to fullness of life. How it leads to redemption and restoration and the growth of good societies to your glory. Lord, would you give us faith in you? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you help us to have strength to obey by the power of your spirit? Lord, I pray for anyone here who's suffering in particular from from deep woundedness in whatever that area of their life might be, whether a failure to live up to this or an inability to live up to this in some ways, but would you comfort them with the power of your spirit and show them how much they are a creature right now made in your image and likeness who you love, who you died for, you've given a purpose and a calling to, to be part of what you are doing in this world. Just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.